Welcome to The Floss. My name is Gabe Gary, and my guest for today's episode is a filmmaker. You're from Cleveland. You were in Seattle, and you're back in Cleveland. Yep. Uh, Alex Fiore. Mm -hmm. How about you go ahead and say hi to the people? How you doing? I am Ariel Alexander Fiore. Most people just call me Alex because I am not the Little Mermaid. It is not Ariel. Um, I am a director. Uh, I've won a handful of awards uh, on some small circuits. Uh, I am a screenwriter. Uh, I'm a poet. I'm a professional asshole. Uh, and, you know, it's pretty much what I got. For part one of this episode, I'm going to ask you a question. And that question is, what is something you do that you think everybody should do. Right. Okay. So I think uh, when we initially talked, um, the one thing that I do that I notice a lot of directors apparently do not do, and this is something I've heard from different people, is to be really open and fluid with their their cast and crew. Um, I've heard a lot of people come up on you know sets and you know they're directors, so they're all huffed up and they've got this whole like very tyrannical way of going about it. It's my way or the highway. You can read this exactly as is, blah, blah, blah. I'm the boss. I got the biggest dick on the block. And I mean, like, look, if that's if that's how you're going to run your crew, I mean, I hate to say it, but a lot of people are not going to want to work with you. Paid or not, doesn't matter. They're, they're just not going right. to be happy. And if there's anything I've learned is that, like, and a lot of people may not believe this or whatever, is when you... <laughs> When you have a crew that's miserable, you will see the result of that in your post-production. Mm -hmm. You will see it in the work that is you know, put out. And I try to come up on set, and yes, I am the director. I'm the captain. But I am relying on my crew just as much as they're relying on me. It's a group effort. It's a, you know, it's a team yep. effort. So for me, I will take a suggestion from almost anybody. Yep. And that's because there is somebody that's on set that's looking at this from an outside perspective – in a way that I'm not because I'm in it, my DP's in it or whatever. And they're going to be like, hey, what about this? I'm not going to look at you and go, who the fuck are you, sound guy? You know, you can right. you know, go back and do your job. I'm never going to be that guy. I'm the guy that's going to sit and talk to you. I'm like, okay, explain that to me. Run that through me. Talk, you know, give it to me. And they'll paint me a picture. You know, like, okay, what about this, this, and then it looks like this. And the worst thing, and I tell people this all the time, and maybe this is something they're afraid of is why they don't take suggestion. Is they're afraid it's going to take away from production time, it's going to bog them down, whatever. See, I see that the opposite is what is the worst literal thing that happens if you suggest something and we try it? It doesn't work. Right. What do we lose? What, 10 minutes, 20 minutes? Who gives a shit? Because at the end of the day, what if that did work? Mm -hmm. I mean, um, my second film that I did, my I worked with these guys for the first film, so we developed a really good relationship and a really good bond and friendship and his name was Tim, and he was my he was one of my actors on there. We had run a few takes, and then we were taking a break, and then he looks at me, he goes, hey, yo, boss, I have an idea. Can you just run it? And I'm like, okay. And I didn't know what he was going to do. He didn't explain it to me. And I looked at my DP. I said, yo, just run it. Run the camera. Let him go. And he's like, okay. And so I called action, and then Tim ran this, this scene, and he switched up the dialogue and did it his own way. And it was so good when I yelled cut, I was about to jump out of my, you know, my, my clothes because it was so good. I was like, that's, that's the one. That's it. His take was better than anything I could have ever wrote or imagined. And if it wasn't for me trusting him and putting his trust in me, we would have never had that moment. Right. So I always tell people, like, if there's anything I would recommend for anybody to be on set is humble yourself and understand that your crew is your team. Mm -hmm. And these are the people that are working with you. They don't just work for you. Talk to these people, hear them out, listen to what they have to say. Maybe somebody has something. 
And if they don't, what is the worst thing that happens is if you try it, it doesn't work. Okay. You just keep going. Nobody suggests something hoping it makes it worse. Right. Nobody out here is like, you know what would really ruin my reputation? You know what really fuck up yeah. your time frame here? Like, no. Everybody is there trying to help you work through a problem, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, we ran into issues shooting the last one we shot, and we were working through a problem, and I had my DP, I had my AC, I had one of the actors trying to be like, oh, what if we do this? What about this? What about what if we try from this angle? What did the... That's the idea is we're working through a problem together. Granted, yes, people are looking at me for the final say because, yeah, you know, you're the guy running the show. But at the end of the day, I am open to those suggestions. Please give me what you got because I want to hear it. Because if I can't figure out the problem, but you have an idea, maybe that's the solution. Mm-hmm. And I feel like editing, I've found this in my own experience, but editing your own films will show you how wrong you yourself could have been mm-hmm. on set. Uh, the hardest the most frustrating shot I ever put Steve through, my DP, the most frustrating shot I ever put him through, didn't even make the cut. No. Didn't even make the final <laughs> cut of the film. I I felt bad because my my DP, Brandon, I the original idea that I had for the cemetery shot was to use a drone. We couldn't get a drone. And I put him through hell trying to get this beautiful pan where he slow walks through with his gimbal and this and that. I mean, he's practically tripping over, you know, stones because it was gravestones. I had to walk him. I had to carry. I, I almost looked like uh, Leo DiCaprio and uh, Kate Winslet on the mm-hmm. front of the Titanic. I had to grab him by the hips and kind of, you know, move with him. And we just had to slowly move through it. But I, I practically, he almost tripped and ate it like four times. And I felt terrible because if he would have fell over and I couldn't have caught him, he was going to come down hard. Mm-hmm. And all I thought of was like this poor kid, like he's just he's trying really hard to get the shot that I see in my mind's eye. But at the same time, he loved it so much that he was like, yeah, we're just going to do it until it's, uh, it looks right. And it, I mean, it came out really good. I mean, like I said, with a bigger production, with more resources, we probably could have got that shot that I wanted. But what we did come up with was still really great. It seems like those kind of relationships, <clears throat> uh, you know, where everybody for a certain amount of time is making something creative. It seems like those are the relationships that have like a really interesting form of intimacy Yep. because everybody on set in a creative endeavor is, uh, knows they might fail. Mm -hmm. Like they know they might fail. So it's like, you know what? Fuck it. No inhibitions. What's the point of it? Like even, I feel like even playing sports, uh, do you ever see what you, the reason I bring that up is because, uh, do you follow football? I used I used to be a huge jock, but I don't follow it so much anymore. But I'll still watch it if it's at the bar and I'm you know. Sean McVay, the Rams coach, has an assistant coach whose whole job is to follow him around and pull him off the field because he gets so passionate. <laughs> he gets so fired up fired up about what's going on in the field. And teams are really close because teams go out there every week with the possibility of failing. Yeah. And when you're not afraid to fail, like amazing things can happen. I I preach that too. I tell people all the time, like, and this is something that was told to me years ago is failure is a part of life and you are, you are going to fail. The problem is the, the, and I'm not trying to get too political about it, but the truth is the American school system teaches us from a really young age. Failure is like the worst possible thing you Mm -hmm. can do. You don't work together with people, figure it out on your own. There's only one fucking answer. That's stupid. 
because there is a million answers. Yep. There's a million ways to approach any situation. And they teach us this from a young age. And what really it makes me sad about that is if you realize what they're doing, they're turning you into really great worker bees. You are reading my mind, dude, because you never see those relationships like in an office. No. You never see dudes, it's all fear-based. dudes touching each other. And like the ability for like two guy friends to like hug mm-hmm. or like tell each other like that like that you love them. Like that's a, that's the form of that's the type of bond you form on a film set. Yeah. You don't see that at, at a nine to five. No. You don't see, like your work friends are literally just people that you see and like the, the bond is whatever. Unless you've been working with them longer than you really want to admit because you right. just really don't want I mean, like you're like, fuck, I've been at this job for like fifteen years, it's crushing mm-hmm. my soul. But I mean, like, for the most part, I've literally had like I, I had Anthony in a scene and he was crying. And I felt so bad watching him cry because that was part of the scene was breaking my fucking heart. I literally walked up because we had to cut and then reset it anyway. I walked up and I hugged him. And I was like, look, are you good? And he's like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm like, all right, look, we are almost done, but you're doing great. And I like, I gave him a hug. You know, we did a whole little bro, you know, like pat on the back. And then like, you know, I walked out. I was like, all right, I got you. We're going to do a couple more. And I was like, you you know, hang in there. And I mean, that's that's a really great moment. And at the end of it, everybody was super excited about it. Um Everybody was really happy with it. Everybody was like high five and hugging. It was great. And then like the best thing I can ever hear is having people tell me, I would love to work with you again. Cause you, mm-hmm. you know, cause I mean like I take great pride in what I do and I try to be really great as far as like, not just, you know, a collaborator, but as a director, as somebody who's like, people are looking at me for answers. So to have people walk up and say, Hey, I'll work with you anytime. Mm-hmm. That's a really great feeling. You know, not just somebody who says, yeah, I like your script, but to be on set, to work with somebody 12 hours a day and then have them look at you and go like, yo, I love working with you. You're really great. Anytime you got something and I'm free, I'm I'm down. Um, I can pick, I mean, just from the 20 minutes we've known each other. Also, yeah, we, we literally just met today for anybody. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I have no idea um, who this guy is. Uh, <laughs> like your your drive is evident. Mm-hmm. So when people tell you, oh, I can't wait to work with you again, what they're saying is, I know you're going to be working in the – like, I know you're not going to stop. Like, I know you're going to keep making stuff, and you're going to get better every time. Yeah. Like, that's what they're saying. And that means a lot to me because, like I said, I mean, I – like, I've come from really humble origins in the sense of when I was a kid, I grew up next to a biker bar sleeping on couch cushions because my parents couldn't afford a bed Damn. for me. Um as I got older, we eventually moved to the mid-burbs, but that came with a – I mean, my parents were working their asses off mm-hmm. to have a nice house that was safe for us to live in. But that doesn't mean we had nice things all the time. Right. You know, it was hit or miss. Um, and then as I got older, things were hard because life is hard. And I mean, like, when I went to Seattle, people don't realize I was homeless for two years out there. I was. I was homeless. I went to film school. I paid off all my debts. And then I moved back – in August with a little bit of money in my pocket and bills were paid because before I left, I was homeless. I was broke. My car was repoed. Insane. Yeah. So I went out to, to Seattle with literally 350 bucks in my pocket and a duffel bag of clothes. And I said, I'm going to make this work because there are resources out here. There's It's a gamble, but I think it's going to work. And then I did that. I went to film school and I made the most out of it. There's uh, no motivator like survival. Yeah. I was determined. I was like, I'm, I was determined to make sure that one, Cleveland didn't devour me. And two, I didn't let life get the best of me at that point. I was like, fuck it. I'm like, if I'm going out, I'm going out swinging. So when, when, uh, when was it you went to Seattle? So that was like 2019, right before the Rona pandemic, you know, where like uh-huh. everything hit. Um, 
I was hoping to go out there and love it, like fall in love with it and stay. Uh, I went out there and it wasn't necessarily what I had hoped. It's a beautiful place. Don't get me wrong. Like the mountains are beautiful. The trails are beautiful. It's, it's very like PNW, like, mm-hmm. like when you see uh, commercials for like Columbia where somebody's out camping with the dog and they, they're yeah. making a cup of coffee, the old, you know, fashion wild west way. That's very much, you could have that. But there's also a different kind of culture out there as far as, like, people out there are very passive-aggressive, very fake. It's the West Coast. It is. It's the West Coast. You can't say anything. And here's the thing. We're East Coast cats. I don't care what anybody says about being in the Midwest. We are, like, literally a hop, skip, and jump away from New York. We're East Coasters. We are very blunt, Mm -hmm. and we're very real. And when you're out there, they do not like that. It makes them physically uncomfortable when you were just upfront with shit. Yep. And I realized that really early on and I was like, okay, this is not really the culture I'd hoped for, the not not the people I'd hoped for. And then like between the drug epidemic out there, the homelessness problem out there, because it's everywhere. Like Seattle downtown Seattle looks like a fucking war zone. Really? There's there's tents everywhere. There's wow. people literally just screaming That's at telephone so poles. Sad, it's it's sad because the problem is, and I mean like no disrespect to Seattle because like using those resources helped me get out of things. But the reason that those resources exist is because they make so much money. It's a river of money out in Seattle making money off of the homelessness problem. Like they have they-, um, they have tiny house villages. So it's like those little sheds, right? And they, you know, it's very basic. And I was in those for a little bit too. And what people don't understand is like the way they make money off of people in prison, you know, being in prison, mm-hmm. each prisoner gets uh, so much money from the government for being there. They make the same off of people in tiny house villages. Each of those people living in that village, the Fed will send these people or the state will send these organizations like the tiny home villages, uh, which is Lehigh, uh, so much money per um, you know, person that's in there. And they make money off that. And then the resources that they get for that, the money they get for that from the homelessness is bananas. So the thing is they make too much money to really fix the problem completely, but they seem like they're trying to fix the problem. So that's the kind of – the circus that they got going on oh let's put up these low-income houses oh let's put up these tiny home villages to help the homeless what it really is is they're making a shit ton of money off those people Mm. and it's sad it's really sad it is um you've been to austin no i haven't been to austin in years uh i haven't been since i was a kid to be honest uh it's like uh is it like that if uh well if uh, it's not gonna happen but if a revolution happens it's mm. going to start in those homeless villages. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. It's going to start there. Uh, and uh, it it'll probably start in Austin because I've heard what you, how you describe Seattle is how I've, I've heard Austin described like on steroids. Yeah. Um, I've also heard of, I think it's an urban legend, but it might be true that uh, the government gives homeless people up north bus, one-way bus tickets to Austin. I haven't heard that. To get them out of the because I mean, if you're homeless, would you rather be in in December? Would you rather be in Austin or Cleveland? Right, exactly. So it's like a it's a win win. Cleveland gets rid of the homeless people. Homeless people get to go to Austin, but it's like super fucked up. Yeah, no, and like I said, I mean, like it's a broken system. But I used what I could to my advantage because I knew out there. Seattle had resources because of all the money, because of Microsoft, because of Google, because of whatever, because of this, because of the weed, you know, legal, you know, weed being legal. They have a river of money out there. So I was like, okay, look, if I'm going to take a gamble on anywhere and get my shit together, I'm going to go to Seattle. And because something in the back of my head kept whispering, Seattle, Seattle, Seattle. And I was like, all right, fuck it, I'll go. So I went 
and I made the most out of it. And like I said, it did me some good. It was it was good and bad in some different ways, but the culture out there was just not for me. I wonder why that is. I, the first thing that comes to my head is like, okay, all of the money that's on the West Coast uh, is made by like you know parents who probably aren't as attentive, mm-hmm. or like parents like, you know, we get a very. I like I like that I had like a blue collar upbringing. Same, and uh, you that's. You don't really get a blue collar. No, out, out the there West it's Coast. a lot of it's a lot of tech uh, people that literally have way too much money, and then their kids are running around with brand new eighty thousand dollar jeeps, and they wrap them around telephone poles because they're too busy making TikTok dances in their cars. I've seen more accidents in the middle of June in Seattle by the same kids I'm, I'm making fun of than I have here in the middle of a snowstorm. Maybe all the maybe all the kids on the west. Coasts are passive aggressive because they're raised by uh, passive aggressive people. That's yeah. I mean, and that's possible because I mean, like I've met a lot of people out there that come from very, very wealthy, well-to-do families, and you could hear the entitlement. You could hear the lack of discipline in their voice because they were never probably spoken to a certain way. I got my ass beat. Mm -hmm. Those kids have probably never once had their asses beat. I got. I dude. I have a whole entire like three minutes about yeah when you're at. Growing up, if you were acting like a jackass, you got fucking hit. And that was it. And then it, You could have a whole room full of people, but they would see you get that ass beat. And then I mean, you didn't act like a jackass anymore. No. I mean, my grandma used to chase me around the house. I used to hide underneath the uh, the you know dining room table sometimes to get away from her. I did my get little- Get the wooden spoon. Yeah, she get the wooden spoon. Yeah. Who wants a licking? I knew it. I knew you were going to say it. the wooden spoon. I It never fails. She would grab the wooden spoon or the belt, and it was that was it. It was on. Yeah. And they've probably never experienced such a thing as out there. It's like, oh my god, that's child abuse. Uh that's that's. Here's the thing. I I pers- I I got spanked a few times. I have no plans on hitting my kids, but I have plans on having kids that hit each other. Yeah, there you go. Just watch them beat the shit out. Just yeah. put it, boxing gloves on them and then tell them to go I don't outside. Th- I don't think it's quite fair for the parents to be hitting kids, but a jury of your peers is much more powerful. <laughs> Because when your parent when your parent hits you, it's like it's an equal fight. Yeah, it's like so it's like so destroying to like. I feel like it's destructive to like their how they'll view love in the future. I, I've but, heard that. But when but when your peers beat the <laughs> shit out of you, it just teaches you how to act right. <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't like. Okay, uh, yeah. I mean, look, me and my friends got into fights. I mean, my and- best friends in the world are the people that I've been the most furious with and uh dealt the biggest be- ass beatings and got the biggest ass beatings from. yeah me and my friends literally when we were kids because i grew up uh in the neighborhood that we, had, we eventually moved into when i was like nine uh my best friend lived like a few houses down and then our other friends lived like caddy corner a few houses down from us as well so like there was this little triangle and like the between the four of us i'm telling you we had lots of scrapes and, like, it was funny how when you're a kid, you could literally get your ass beat or beat somebody's ass. And, like, three hours later, you guys are right back to it outside. And that, and that was it. That was the end of it. It's like, what else are you, who else yeah. you going to hang out with? And I'm the only it. one here. I was like, shit, I don't have anybody to ride bikes with. I got to go to Aaron and Kurt's house now again. I just beat the shit out of Kurt. I mean, you know, it was, yeah, it was really weird. But at the same time, like, I think about that. That's a wonderful time in life to be a kid. Because, I mean, like, first off, the simplicity of it. Mm-hmm. But second of all, there's that childlike sense of wonder that we we so 
unfortunately lose as we get older because life and its realities kind of settle in. And then you start realizing like, oh, wow, it's not as simple as going out and, you know, getting a sled with your homies and, you know, on a snow day and going down the hill or riding bikes till the lights come on in the mm. summertime. And and that's unfortunate. But you know what, though? It taught me a lot as a kid. And if anything, I mean, if you look at it in hindsight, 2020, I mean, I think that really is the golden era of your life is to be like that between that age of like whatever it was. So for me, it was like from eight to 12. The, those years were like really special to me. It creates it. It, it forms who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we were, I was part of we were the we were the biking. We were the biking like we were just like. Put, we ride patrol all around on our bikes and the fuck we go to the strip mall whatever we go to the school and like we climb all over we climb to the roof of the school get yelled at yeah. and then run away um one of the that's actually where one of the my, the biggest fights i ever had like it it ended with me uh leaving my other two friends screaming at each other as i was riding away he and then i rode back to his house because I thought the friendship was over, oh. and he had and he had like one of my baseball bats or something, and I was like, I thought the friendship was over, so I was like, I got to go get my baseball bat because I'm never going to see this kid ever again. And his mom was hanging out outside, and she goes, uh, she goes, what are you doing here? I go, fuck Kevin. I <laughs> took my baseball bat, and then I went home, and then I saw him the next day. That's great. I was like, fuck that dude, man. And then you're just like, yo, you want to go hang out? And you're like, all right, yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, like that's that's a wonderful time in life. I mean, like I said, like I I think back on it and I'm like, man, I'd kill to like drink that in for just a minute. It's so much, just the essence of being a kid. I you mean, you if dude if you wanted to tomorrow, well it's not it's weather permitting, but like you and your friends could go sledding. We that's could. the that's the most disappoint. I feel like that's that's where the disappointment comes in as you lose the child. And you grow into an adult. Mm-hmm. The child is still there. Yeah. You just—I don't know how to articulate this. You can go sledding if you want, but it doesn't hit the same. Yeah, it's never the same as when you're a kid. And th- and I know what you're talking about yeah. because here's the thing: that essence of childhood is gone. You, your inner child should always be there. You should never lose your inner child. The minute your inner child dies, you you just die. But at the same time, it'll never hit the same as it was. Like if I were to go sledding tomorrow with me and some some dudes. It will never be the same as how it felt waking up at six in the morning, checking the news, yeah. knowing that you don't have to go to school. You throw on your warmest thermals and your clothes, and you literally bang on your friend's door like the fucking feds coming in for a raid. Yep. And like you grab your sled and you go to the down the the way to wherever you're going. For us, it was like over by Memphis, right, the the kitty park, uh-huh. and we would go over there and we'd go down that hill and sled. And that was yeah, we'd there, we'd go to a big ass. It was a, it was a big hill, flat, and then another big hill over mm-hmm. in like Independence or somewhere. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. but. Um, I feel like one of the reasons uh, it's not the same is because the, if you went sledding tomorrow as an adult, the whole time you're just thinking about all the shit you got to do the next day. Yep, that's or, uh, reason. when this is over, what do I have to do? So, like, it's hard to, like, you know, really, to quote Natasha Bedingfield, really release your inhibitions. Like, yeah. experience the moment because you're always thinking about the next thing. Yeah, because you're always like, oh, shit, uh, my electric bill is due tomorrow. Oh, I got a blah, blah, blah. I got that paper yeah. for my boss. It's whatever. Like, whatever your, your thing is, you have shit to do tomorrow that's adult. Today, you could be 12, but then tomorrow, reality is yeah, going to hit you in the face. And then you're going to be like, well, shit, I still have all this stuff to do. But when you're a kid... That is all you have. Your sole job is to be a kid. And next, tomorrow you're still going to be 12. Yeah. 
And, and that's unfortunate. So, I mean, like, like I said, we lose that as we get older and I've done everything humanly possible to preserve not just that essence in the sense of like those memories, but to preserve what little inner child I have left. Because without that, I, I'm going to lose my sense of imagination and wonder my sense of creativity. Cause that's really where the essence of being an artist comes from is mm-hmm. not just your experiences as an adult, as you get older, but it comes from your your inner child because your inner child is is like your imagination is literally just running rampant at that age, yep. and that's where we get so much of our our sense of like, man, this is bananas. But what if we could do this? You know, I think like some of the greatest sci fi films, some of the greatest uh, films of our time. I mean, even like the the Marvel whole universe, right? Some of those come from you know the Russos tapping into their inner child and like letting some of that imagination yep. through. Yeah, and I and I, back to the topic at hand, you know, being open mm-hmm. with your team, being open to being wrong, uh, n- letting your team know, hey, don't be afraid to be wrong. I'm yeah. not going to judge because that's how you that's how you want to behave with kids. When a kid makes a mistake, you don't want to you don't want to say, oh, fuck you for making that mistake. No, you were wrong to make that mistake. You said, okay, you made a made a mistake, but here's how we can make it better. Right, uh, and here's how you can learn from it and make it a positive thing. When you teach a kid that, like like we were talking about with the, the school system, mm-hmm. when you teach kids that, you are destroying so much creativity, so much faith in themselves, so much confidence, so much of those things that you need as you grow up. You know, like you're like, oh, well, you made this mistake and you're wrong and you failed. That's a horrible – I mean, that's so detrimental because, like, at that point, it's not like, oh, you failed, but that's okay mm-hmm. because you're going to fail and then let's talk about it. It's more like, oh, you failed – so, yeah, you know, that's just that, I guess. Your whole life is over at the age of seven. Yeah. I feel that's one of the reasons I'm extremely grateful uh, that my parents sent me to private school because mm. they didn't have that bullshit public school curriculum mm. where I had really phenomenal teachers um, who, I mean, yeah, when you were wrong, you got told you were wrong. Yeah. But, you know. But then it was were, about working through it. Right. Yeah. How do I make this? And it was almost always usually it was a history class, but it was the writing the papers. I never had problem writing in like the English classes. Mm-hmm. Or it was writing, his, making historical arguments. Mm-hmm. And I feel like getting that wrong so many times has helped me in filmmaking and my comedy. Yeah. De- deliver your ideas as quickly as po- as efficiently as possible. Because that's yeah. really what you're, that's most, that's what editing is. Pretty much. Deliver the articulate this. Help us understand, and help us understand what you're trying to say, and nothing else. Yeah, I mean, even Tarantino. I mean, like, I don't want to quote. I don't want to be pretentious and quote other directors, but I think one of the best things that I I got out of when I and when I started directing was I was like, what's the best approach to this? And I remember watching a clip of Tarantino talking about the idea that a director should have is your job. Is not just to run the show, not just to be the captain, but it's mainly to articulate your vision to your crew and then for them to see that and then, you know, work with you as far as that, you know, and go from there. So really, when it comes down to it between editing, between directing and storytelling, your main focus there is to articulate it the best possible way, the most detailed, the most this, the most that, to give people a vivid vision of what you're looking at. Because yeah. if people cannot see it in their mind's eye, then you're not articulating enough. Yeah. When I would pitch these things to to my, my guy Brandon or whatever, he'd be like, oh, okay, I see it. That's how I know I'm telling you the right thing. Because if you could tell me, oh, I see it, then that means you see it in your mind's eye. Mm-hmm. 
And that's, that's how I try to view it is articulate your vision the best possible way you can so way people can see what you're seeing or at least see some of what you're seeing. And, and it's <clears> like, how do I know this green, the green I see is the green you see? It might not. But even when they say I see it, it might not be the exact same. No, thing. Not, it will not be 100%. And that's, and that's when the... That's when the I, the suggestion comes out on mm-hmm. set and the ideas converge into something right. really great. They will see a version of it, and that that's perfect because then that means that maybe you have an idea. Maybe you're seeing it from a different angle. So, like, as far as I see it, I look at it almost like your vision is one camera in one angle. Then somebody else's vision is another camera in another angle, which means they see it from a totally different perspective. And that's the beauty of filmmaking is you're going to meet people that obviously see it from different perspectives. And then that gives you more options, more suggestions, more thoughts. It's uh, it's it's extremely difficult. It's like mm. trying it's like trying to tell your parents how to use the internet over the phone. <laughs> Did you turn it it's on like, and off? Did you you okay? You want to send the email? I know what it looks like to send the email. Mm. I have to get you there. Yep. Um, also, yeah, uh, fuck that. I, I, fuck that popularity. Don't quote really famous directors. And super, no, fuck that. Like, okay. If you're not aspiring, if you're not inspired or take wisdom from, from Tarantino, people, yeah. Christopher Nolan, Stanley Kubrick, that like all those ger- like stereotypical white dude directors. Yeah, f- <laughs> like, yeah, do it. Who c- there? I just try not to do it in a way where it's like super pretentious because I've heard I people quote that, directors yeah. and they're really like pretentious with it, especially like some of the cats out in Seattle that I met. I'm sure. They're like, well, I mean, uh, you know, if you talk to David Ayer, blah, blah, okay, blah. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, okay, ho- slow your roll there, guy. Like, you're like a scarf and a beret away from like, you know, like looking really okay, like pretentious yeah, yeah, with that. Yeah. I try to look at it as like, hey, look, this is what he said. And I resonate with that because it makes sense. Mm-hmm. That is your job. Your director, your job is to articulate a vision, is to articulate what you see because people are coming together to try to create what you see in your mind's eye. Yeah. And I feel those and I feel like those people are trying to be mm-hmm. that director rather than learn from that director yeah. and become their own person and become their own director. Yeah, I mean like look, you if you want to emulate them, whatever, okay, but I mean like to literally try to yeah, and I'm like, uh, you know what? I just want to take what he said and just use it for myself. That happens in comedy. Uh, most every every comic has their influences. They're they're greats that they look right. up to, and a lot of them are the same for a lot of people. But when come when people start doing comedy, it's like they're trying to mimic their favorite the style, comic. Yeah, and uh, eventually you realize I that person became one of the greats because they are the only person that can do that. And that it's so unique to them. Stop trying to mimic them. Take from them, maybe a little bit. Learn from them, mm-hmm. but you have to you have to find your own thing. You've got to find your own. You thing. have to find your own style. If you don't have your own style, then you're not unique. You're just you're just a carbon cutout or a, you know a cookie cutout of, of that person. And the problem is, you're no longer a different face. You're just another face. Yeah. And so, like, look, I could I could sit and quote Tarantino. I could quote Scorsese. I could quote all these other cats that are, you know, obviously very gifted, talented directors that have done uh, amazing work. I mean, like some of the some of the best films I've ever seen come out of Tarantino's, you mm-hmm. know, head because he's he's got quite the imagination. And then that does include other people as well. Like, I mean, I'm a huge anime nerd, so I look at like Miyazaki, not just you know his his talent as a you know as an artist, you know, drawing these things by hand, but him as a director who puts these wonderful creative worlds together. And I'm like, wow, that's brilliant. You know, but like I said, I mean, to take that, that's his style. Yeah. I would never want to, if I had, if that was the route I was going to go, I would never want to necessarily completely, 
you know, cut out that and then make that my own style. I want to just kind of take from it and then go, okay, how can I make this my own? And how disappointing would your life be if you if you spent the entire time trying to be Miyazaki when you know deep down you could never be Miyazaki? No, Miyazaki's a genius in his own way. Plug your shit. Um, okay, so right now I'm currently working on a film called The Eulogies. It is going to be running the circuit for a while, but it will be available in May when it is done with the circuit. Um, my plugs are you can find me at, at wolfandblue.com or at wolfandblue on Instagram and a.alexanderfiore on Instagram as well. And you could just look me up, Ariel Alexander Fiore, on Facebook. And that is The Floss. <laughs>